We do the, like the Anchorman ones. The arsonist has webbed feet. <laughs> the arsonist, say it. The arsonist has webbed feet. Math is a thorny subject whether you're learning it or teaching it. Yeah, I mean, what's so exciting about a bunch of numbers? Oh, come on. Haven't you ever done a word problem? Those are That's a great way to relate to math in, in the real world. Like, well, yeah, but like, big deal. I calculated who would get there first, once upon a time. A sparrow flying in a straight line or a truck driving at a faster pace <laughs> on a curving road. <laughs> did you, Yippee. Did you ever have a good math teacher, Blake? Yeah, of course. Like, I got a five on the AP Calculus exam. <laughs> okay, well then. Must have studied for that, presumably passed that class, and you're the one who interviewed our math teacher guest today. So there's clearly some part of you that cares about math. <sighs> like, yeah, fine. Blake's rolling his eyes. All right, this week, we are going to dive into what it takes to make math education great. And we'll do that with Dan Meyer, perhaps America's most famous math teacher. We'll be talking about the misconception that all kids inherently hate math, the philosophies that govern math education, and what Dan's been up to since he left math classrooms. I'm still not interested in math. Well, good luck with your taxes then, friend. All right, let's get going. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Michael Winters. Mojo and Katie resemble characters from the cast of Pixar's Inside Out. But the two critters are stars of their own show, a series of animated shorts produced by Class Dojo that aim to teach the growth mindset, the idea that intelligence and abilities are not innately fixed, but can be strengthened over time. What may be a bigger development, though, this is the first time the company is using its platform as a content distribution channel. Got any suggestions for how Reed Hastings should spend his money? The Netflix CEO has launched a $100 million philanthropic fund for education, dubbed the Hastings Fund. A couple of his early investments include a $1.5 million donation to the United Negro College Fund and the Hispanic Foundation of Silicon Valley. It's not his first education largesse, though. He's previously given money to Khan Academy and Dreambox. Personally, I wish he would have invested some of that in a better season three for House of Cards. Ooh. It's the mystery of the mysterious patent filing. Why is Khan Academy filing a patent for, quote, what effectively amounts to A-B testing in education, end quote? Ever since Slashdot reported on the application, a flurry of commenters have expressed concerns over why the nonprofit would try to lay claim to a practice that's long been an industry standard. The answer to the riddle is at edsurge.com. On the politics front this week, no, it's not Donald Trump, it's Google. In a letter to Google CEO Sundar Pichai, Senator Al Franken, a Democrat from Minnesota, wrote that he's concerned about how Google may be, quote, using student data for non-educational purposes, unquote. Franken believes that Americans have a fundamental right to privacy, and he's unsure where Google stands on that after a recent complaint by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Lots of Americans agree with Senator Franken. According to a fresh report from the Pew Research Center, 91% of American adults say that consumers have lost control over how personal information is collected and used by companies. A couple of big personnel moves this week. First, Rhode Island is welcoming back one of its own, Richard Kulata, former director of educational technology for the U.S. Department of Education. He's accepted a position as chief innovation officer for the state of Rhode Island, and he reports that he's working with Governor Gina Raimondo at the Rhode Island State House on the state's education initiatives. Second, former educator Michelle King will take over as superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District when current superintendent Ramon Cortinez wraps his role up in June of 2016. King has worked in the district for 31 years. She started as a teacher, and she's held almost every role since. 
And now it's time for Kachings. Microsoft just added another building block to its presence in the classroom. The company has acquired Minecraft EDU, a customized version of Minecraft that's designed for the classroom. Microsoft bought the full Minecraft game for $2.5 billion in 2014. Joel Levin, brainchild of Minecraft EDU and a former guest on this show, says that he's optimistic about the deal and the next popular game that his company, Teacher Gaming, is modding. Check out our podcast on Minecraft EDU on our EdSurge podcast page. Back to Kachings. Course Horse has raised a $4 million Series B round from existing investors and Red Ventures, which led the round. The company helps adult learners find classes to learn new things, and its website includes an important warning, not for the boring. Finally, FlexClass has raised a $2.5 million round at a $60 million valuation. The New Delhi-based company says it has scored commitments worth $10 million from employers across India in 2015. Congratulations to them and to all the other companies that raised money this week. Dan Meyer is arguably America's most famous math teacher. If you think that's overblown, maybe you can agree he's very popular. He's the creator of a widely read blog, D.Y. Dan, which you can find at blog.mrmeyer.com. The URL is an homage to when his students called him Mr. Meyer. He's also got 43,400 Twitter followers who engage readily with him about math tools and activities. Dan himself is not sure what made his blog so popular. D.Y. Dan offers lessons and insights into education from his everyday life. In our interview, he said the blog morphed from classroom insights to grad student discussions to late night startup talks as his life went on. Dan was a math teacher for six years, and he recently finished a PhD at Stanford in math education, where he studied how students in a chat room interacted when trying to solve math problems. He's now the chief academic officer at Desmos, which makes a powerful and free graphing calculator that you can use in your browser. Desmos also publishes math activities for teachers and hosts Valentine's Day graphing competitions. I was an English major and, briefly, an English teacher. My perspective on Dan's work is like a person from the South Pole interviewing someone about life on the equator. Same world, different place. An outsider's perspective. If I were a math teacher, perhaps, it might be more like people from different parts of the equator convening. What I mean to say is that there is clearly another part to the discussion you're about to listen to. It involves the nitty-gritty details of math education. What tools you use, at what grade level, what pedagogical methods are right for this concept or that. I invite you to continue it with us online. For now, though, maybe you'll enjoy our chat about stories in math, American math education, and the role of computers in math today. For our readers, what do you think the role of technology is in math education, especially since math seems like it's the easiest to codify? But I don't know if you think that's the case. I think that's the case. That's why you see a lot of startups begin uh, with mathematics. They create their first MVP, their products in mathematics, because it, it does seem as though it's the easiest to put into algorithms and variables. Computers are built around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that same process leads to a lot of really algorithmic thinking from students, why a lot of uh, math ed tech startups focus on procedural skills, um, recipes and routines that are easy for computers to understand and assess. Uh, for, I mean, from teachers and students, like, there's been a lot of positive feedback. Lots of folks like what we do. Uh, we, we ask teachers for feedback a lot, so we're, we're not like uh, up in the ivory tower necessarily, <laughs> like just doing our thing and then releasing it. Uh, but but 
using computers in math class is a really challenging field. Like it's, it's even, you know, like we can pretend in Silicon Valley that, uh, you know, every, every class has a classroom set of this or that, and it's easy to open them up and turn them on. But I mean, Wi-Fi coverage is, is you know, <laughs> is pretty patchy in some areas. Device mm. coverage is tough. Devices don't work. Like we're still, we're still in the wild west. And so, uh, you know, we don't want what we make to incur user cost in addition to all this, the logistics that are out there already. And we're still finding that to be a good challenge, making mm-hmm. this easy to use uh, for teachers and students. Yeah. What's been the most like, challenging piece of feedback you've gotten from a teacher? Uh, uh, most challenging piece of feedback? Um, I guess there are two types. There's one, I imagine there's teachers sometimes call you and say, my device doesn't even work. How can I use Desmos? And like, it's kind of impossible, but also... Is there a piece of feedback you've gotten that has really like changed how you think about what you do? Yeah, I think the most challenging one is that teachers will take an activity that they presume will be interesting and engaging and they put it in front of students and the students are, it's a quiet classroom. The kind of dialogue that they're used to isn't happening. Um, and so what, like this is this, what we've noticed is that in one-to-one math classes, one device per student, like students tend to get wrapped up in the screen a little bit. And um, some of the value of students talking back and forth is lost there. So we're exploring more often in our, in our pilots, our tests, a one-to-two model where you have two students talking together over the same laptop. Mm-hmm. That's been, for a lot of lessons, really productive as they argue back and forth in ways that just don't happen uh, when every student is on a computer individually, that's, that was a, a challenging and useful piece of, pe- piece of feedback, and we're still we're still sorting out what works best there for our lessons. Hmm. A colleague of mine, Christina Quattrochi, who sometimes appears on this podcast, had used Dan's lessons when she was a teacher. She wanted to ask about the tension between project-based learning and math instruction, and I wanted to know, isn't there an inherent tension between starting projects without having the tools to do them? You wouldn't go to repair a car and decide to invent the wrench on the spot, would you? But that's kind of how you start a project in math. Yeah, which comes first, the skills or the application of the skills. And if you start with the skills, how do you uh, keep you know, those skills interesting enough for students so that the project isn't just for the survivors of the boring skill-based instruction, that kind of thing? <laughs> I feel that question. Uh, also, um, mainly, I, I try to put students in experiences that activate their, their informal understanding of mathematics. And then at some point, they get stuck. And I ask, I ask a question that's just too formal for them, that the, the project or the problem or whatever it is um, reaches a level where they need more help. And that's a great moment where the student has a need for the instruction, where they have enough background inf- information, uh, background knowledge of the context to appreciate the instruction. And then they can use it immediately afterwards. That's uh, in contrast to here, learn all these skills. I promise you we'll use these in a few weeks in some interesting ways. Um, so it's, it's not this like before or after. It's kind of in the middle is what I'm looking to do with, with skills. And that timing is uh, really hard for computers to time out, really hard. Teachers mm. can recognize when that moment has, has arisen and respond accordingly much, uh, much easier. Yeah. And where do you think, along with that, where do you think like, there's kind of a narrative of like kids hate math and you have to co- teachers have to coerce them into finding it interesting or even just engaging with it where do you think do you think that comes from a failure to differentiate that kind of instruction how do you but the boundaries of math have like grown so far beyond what most high what almost any high school teacher is teaching how do you convince kids that I mean I see I see what you're saying with like 
kids finding the boundaries of their own mathematics, but the boundaries of like new mathematics are so far beyond what most of us will ever get to. So how do you convince them that's like a worthwhile journey? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not anticipating that every student will you know, that I teach will go on and you know just push the boundaries of string theory or something like that. Like that's not that's not the intent. But people who study string theory got into it because they experienced the the exhilaration at one point of of pushing on boundaries of their own knowledge, if not the knowledge of humanity. So I want students to have this sense that like, okay, I've I've reached the limit of what I know. I can kind of see off in the distance the hazy future of what I know. Let me have someone help guide me there. Like uh, for the whole coordinate plane thing, like I, I love putting like a, a field of dots on the board and asking students to pick one privately and then try to tell a neighbor where that dot is on the board. And we feel how hard that is and how difficult it is. And then that's like five minutes worth of time. And then bam, the coordinate plane, the grid goes on the board. And it's like, wow, this grid, it makes things so much easier. My point is four spaces to the left of the center and three spaces up, I get where it is. And that moment has, you know, has no project, no problem, no career attached to it, but it's this moment of like, oh, I feel this need for communication that math can provide. Hmm. What was that moment for you? Uh, I mean, for me, I, my, my own journey in math was very operational. I, I, like I, I had a lot of really good teachers, but I, I enjoyed learning operation after operation. I, I, <laughs> I, like I am not the sort of student that I worry about. And, and, and honestly, like when I got into teaching, I realized the limitations of my own education, how I understood the operations mm-hmm. and not the, not the why, not uh, the how and not the why. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the thorny problem of teaching kids, which is why I got into it. Yeah. Well, if you're not the sort of student that you worry about, how do you relate to those students? Uh, yeah, I think I, I've had I've had good experiences failing at learning mathematics. That's been helpful for sure. Um, and then also, yeah, I, I think what you just said there is like one of the central issues in education, which is the the curse of expertise. They call it, where it's so hard to uh, to empathize with people who don't know what you know. So, so, so making yourself ignorant of what you know and asking yourself, what questions would I have? If I don't know what I currently know, that's, that's uh, one of the key challenges for teachers, new teachers, veteran teachers. Are there moments when you're doing, when you're working on Desmos and lessons and calculators now that you realize like, oh, I wish I had had that as a teacher or conversely, are there moments where you're just saying, where you realize this is not a thing I would need as a teacher and then like curtail a project? Yeah, definitely. Both moments uh, exist. I mean, a lot of the former where I'm just like, this would have been such a fun lesson or my students would have understand this concept so much better had they had these tools. But then there's other moments where I'm just not sure exactly how the computer would s- support learning in the way I would want as a teacher. Like uh, argumentation is huge in math class now. Uh, it needs to be anyway. It's one of the common course t- standards. We're working on that. All, every teacher is, of course. And um, arguments are just, they're they struggle when you put them into the computer and send them around. It's like arguments don't function well right now when you're in a class of 30 kids. Arguments are best um, <laughs> done as a, as a whole group discussion with different kids making their case. Um, so those are moments. There's moments like those where I, I see the tools we make and I say these are great for a lot of things, but not perfect for everything. Yeah. And to be honest, I was never much of a math person in school. I studied it and I did kind of well. But I was drawn to the stories that English and history could tell me. I pushed Dan a little bit on this. Where is the story in math? Yeah. Hmm. That seems to me a lot of what I think about with math education. I studied English. And to me, there's like a story inherent in all sorts of 
English assignments, but math is like very much less so, especially in higher education, I think. Yeah, you know, like I, I take a lot of inspiration from the three acts of a story. If people know my work at all, they know that I, I do this three act math style um, and I, I oftentimes and I see in math education, one of my first observations as a new teacher, the math that I learned after I finished my undergraduate degree was that, wow, there's this this is a story. This is a story about how numbers uh, encounter all these obstacles and conflicts and they need to develop these stronger tools they become variables and so on. Like we, we, math was developed not to, math was developed by uh, you know, people long ago, not with the intent to torture students thousands of years later, but because <laughs> they encountered obstacles and limits to their understanding. What they wanted to do was impossible. So they said, okay, we need imaginary numbers. Okay, we need polynomials. Okay, this and that. And so uh, there is a story. There, there are conflicts that, that, that mathematicians overcame and created new math. And, and our job as teachers is not just to relate the outcome of those conflicts, like here's the ending of the movie, guys, memorize it, repeat it. But like, let's put students, however briefly, in the, that position of conflict. Here is where my existing math is not good enough. Now let me help you guys get some newer math. You know, like dif differentiating the, the the same kind of boring instruction is still boring. Like if I if I put <laughs> students uh, like you need this exercise, you need this exercise, you need this other one. This is your level, but if they're all boring. It doesn't matter if it's like appropriately boring. It's still boring. Uh, I'm, I tend to agree with the cognitive psychologist Daniel Willingham in his book, uh, Why Don't Students Like School? He talks about that, that we have loads of answers, like teachers have the answers in their most formal form. I can teach you how to uh, solve systems of equations through operations, but what they don't have, is, what they don't do is develop the question. He says that we have a problem with developing the question that leads to those answers. Pretty profound stuff. So I, I like to ask myself, given this answer I have that uh, uh, this is how you express a point on a co coordinate plane, um, how can I put students in a place where they uh, uh, appreciate the questions that led to that answer, that they appreciate that we do this because we need to talk about location in a way that's precise and clear. Hmm. So I try to put students in those, in those positions uh, more than I try to like give student the, students the right exercise around coordinate graphing that, that is still at that answer level, that operation level, that formal level. It's dialing it back and saying, what was the question that led to this answer? And putting students there first. And that discussion led us into more abstract discussions about how people think about students in math classes and how they evaluate them. What's the question I'm trying to ask? Like, how much, how much are you influenced by, like, education philosophy as well as, like, education research? Because the two seem kind of fundamentally separate to me, like data, numbers, high ideas about, like, what a student is and what a teacher is. I was wondering if, like, what are those two sides of Dan Meyer? I mean, to a degree, they're separate. But, they're, I mean, like, we, they, they bring us through both in, in grad school. And they, it's important to have a theory that explains data, to have a theoretical perspective. Like, data isn't just a neutral thing. Uh, it can be pushed around neutrally. It has a, how it's collected. It reflects certain values. Um, so, I mean, in terms of... Philosophy. I don't know if I if I disagree with like, like Rousseau, for instance, uh, talks about uh, the, uh, the student Emile, let's say, who you know at various times like discovers a need for directions through the forest or some such. I'm uh, dridging back five five years of uh, of reading here for me, but like the, that sense that like the student has thoughts, like can do things, is not helpless, but also needs to be put into situations where the limits on what the student can do and, and currently thinks are, are visible to the student. That's I mean that's consistent with how I um, how I feel about education certainly mm. and what about and 
how does that approach like mesh with the data that I feel like we're constantly inundated with? Like a study comes out every other day. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's important to understand like what are the like through through what lens was the data collected and analyzed? Like, what what is this is this person approaching education as though it's a series of actions to be repeated and performed? That's a, that's more of a behaviorist idea. Is this is the study like take into account the this, the social environment the students in? It's a different kind of uh, philosophical thought. So both are both are very important, of course. Are there any? Are there any approaches that you see kind of enacted today that you think are like not valid? How do you mean? Like approaches to research, kind of ideas behind studies that you, if you look through the data, like this is what they were really looking for. Do you find that there are studies that come out where you say like, I don't really know about your fundamental approach to math education, education in general? Yeah, I mean, if the, if the study doesn't look at the, the context in which students do the math, like we, we know that students who do math on the street in Brazil have a hard time doing the same exact math in the classroom. So, so I, I find that studies that don't consider the context and what, you know, where the math is being done, mm-hmm. I, like I find them a little bit suspicious. Like I, I, uh, I have to ask more questions about the thought that these are numbers and variables and therefore there's, you know, nothing contextual about them is, uh, you know, misapprehension about mathematics like I, we have this standard algorithm for instance a lot of like how you know how to multiply two-digit numbers and how i know it's probably the same way but it's not necessarily how other cultures have, have adapted to learn how to multiply two-digit numbers it's important for us to know that there's not like a there's not the standard algorithm there, there is there are many standard algorithms it's important that students know how to do operations quickly and proficiently and fluently but the thought that uh, there is this one way to do that, and that's the right way. That, that is something that, for instance, the Common Core State Standards have, have pushed back against. And hmm. So that students need to know a standard algorithm, but not like the one way, which here in America, we, you know, a lot of us grew up learning. That's one way in which context matters. Yeah. And a little bit further down the line, Dan had a lot of things to say on the topic of math education today. So did I, apparently. I didn't realize I had questions and opinions on the topic till we got down to it. Math education is in a very interesting place. I mean, there's a lot of um, teachers are trying to learn how to uh, teach in these with these new practices, the practice standards from the Common Core. It's a lot of lot of challenges there. Um, so that's that's new and interesting and difficult and exhilarating and we're making i think incremental progress there's less terror around what are these new standards and more like okay like i've i think enough teachers have seen the value of students arguing or persevering or problem solving that they they can say like all right i can see how this will work with students that i teach that's a great place to be for us Hmm. how do you i see it as also in kind of a state of flux like the sat is getting revamped all of a sudden the every student succeeds act is changing a lot of what of what states are doing with standards and like what they're going to be doing with tests. So how do you see teachers responding to that? I think, I think regarding assessment, there's a lot of, you're right that the, the assessments, who's in what consortia and uh, you know, are, we, are we backing out to developing our own tests, our own standards? Um, there, there is flux there, but when we see states release their own standards, it tends to be rather close. Uh, mm-hmm. In Texas, Oklahoma, just recently, mm-hmm. um, they tend to be rather close to the Common Core state standards. They reflect this overall um, direction in the country, that this, this consensus that like we need to do more than just calculate, uh, perform operations. We need uh, you know modeling, argumentation, problem solving, perseverance. Those kinds of disciplines are now nationwide like in the conversation at the very least if not in classrooms currently mm-hmm. 
this seems like a pretty I mean what we're talking about seems like a pretty rosy outlook like we're doing these new things this is exciting we're sort of in a state of flux but we're going to make it through but I feel like also even since I've been in high school which I guess wasn't that long ago but I've been hearing about like America's declining math performance especially as, as in relation to like European countries and China kind of being pulled both ways across the oceans so what do you think of that it just seems like it's in a con like it seems like we're hearing about a constant state of panic. Yeah, and I mean, you got to ask yourself who who benefits from sowing that kind of panic. Like a, a, the people who want to, uh, you know, fundamentally disrupt or, or uproot our system of public education would, would benefit a lot from declaring that public education is in a state of crisis. But it's uh, th- those concerns are in many cases overblown. Like the U.S. has never been number one in the world in education. We've seen. Um, you know, huge gains for minority populations that have been underserved in the past. Uh, there's, uh, it's possible my outlook is fundamentally rosy, while yours might be pessimistic. Who knows? But um, <laughs> it's a uh, there's a lot of reasons to be happy with what's happening currently. With with no doubt, loads of room to grow. And uh, I'm not sure I would ever, uh, you know, put us versus South Korea, you know, as a as a really good comparison given the different cultures there and you know, different values placed on education. Um, it's, it's tough to compare across countries like that. Fair. Do you think there's math education is like undervalued in america i I tend to think so i mean i tend to think that uh uh, at least valued differently than it is in some of these high performing countries yeah i think that's uh i would say that Hmm. does that dismay you sure i mean it should dismay everybody that we don't have you know uh uh, you know like a a culture that values uh math olympians like they do you know the super bowl mvp or basketball (laughs) for the year you know that's that's uh that's that's the life we live right now, and we can all we can all work on that. Fair enough. Math is a little bit less of a spectator sport. It is a bit less. Yeah. Yeah. Who are the? So you kind of alluded to this like shadowy conspiracy of people looking to disrupt and discredit public education. Who are those people? I, I, I you know, I don't have names for you, but I know that if people, you know, if we want to see us, if we believe in a strong public education, like it, we we look for what we're doing well and have an honest assessment of what we could improve on. If we want to, you know, tear that apart focus on the negative and we're seeing you know the, the, there's lots of people f- who want to change education for good 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 reasons everyone has great intentions of course mm-hmm. you sound kind of, you sound like you're running for office or something math education i should I, sh- I should watch out for that then i'm not a politician <laughs> <laughs> and do you think there's i mean some of the things that i read say like funding is the one issue with education or uh, I read something today that was saying like interoperability is the thing that's really wrong with education. Do you think there's one issue that if it could be solved would fundamentally change everything and make it all better? I, I, I if there is, I'm not the person who knows it. And I think that, uh, you know, education policy is only a, a spectator sport for me. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, like I, I keep up on it, but I, I don't study it. Um, I think in, in math education, I'm a, little, I'm a little bit better versed there. And in math education, I think a lot of problems would be solved if, te- if teachers if, the, if teachers saw their students thinking as something to be interrogated and valued and built upon rather than uh, written over. If we assume that students didn't just come in with blank slates, uh, empty vessels in their heads to be filled, but they have thoughts. Um, and actively work to figure those out and build on those, we'd be in a, a much better place in math education. But in education generally, I'm uh, not your man there. <laughs> and despite his involvement and passion, as is the story with a lot of teachers, Dan did eventually leave the classroom. 
Well, you were a math educator for how long? Six years. Okay. And why did you, why did you end up leaving the classroom? Uh, I mean, a number of reasons. Pragmatically, California tends to lay off its its new teachers every uh, every spring. It was, so I got laid off, and um, you know they hired them back, but it was a lot of uncertainty there. Um, yeah, I, I tend to just I tend to go where the questions take me, and I love a good question, a good thorny question. I got into um, Stanford to study a certain kind of question, and that that mutated, and uh, now I'm here at Desmos studying different questions around computer based math. Uh, just I love the mental activation of having a, a question that keeps you up at night, um, <laughs> makes the showers go on too long, that kind of thing. So that's why I, that's why I took off, hmm. and now I work with teachers and students. So it keeps me close enough. And lastly, I asked him a few factual questions, like why did he start working at Desmos? That's a good point. Thank you for clarifying like my bad question. Uh, I hope I met you in the middle or something. <laughs> um, back to an easy question: Why did you choose to work for Desmos? I think that uh, uh, Desmos philosophically, like uh, I, you know, I'm the chief academic officer, so I have a lot of a lot to do in terms of studying philosophy academically mm. and educationally, which is nice for me. Uh, but but even before I got here, uh, when I've worked with them in a consulting level, like they we, we had very sympathetic views on like what we love about math class, uh, math classes we've loved in the past, what we want computers to do in math class. It's it's not simple to find a math startup that you know puts on their homepage. Like graph art, art that students have created out of graphs. Like that reflects a certain sensibility in, in a startup that's not like, you know, this is what we do is we put numbers in boxes and we decide if the numbers are correct or not. And we tell the student <laughs> if they're correct or not. That's a, a different kind of math startup mentality. So mm -hmm. that's a big part of it. It's nice to work with, uh, you know, the most talented uh, technologists and designers in the Valley as far as I'm concerned. So mm -hmm. they, they do things that I don't know how to do, uh, that I want to do, you know, but they, we are all very complimentary here, every department. Uh, has enormous skill, but um, uh, can't do what the other departments do. And so we work well together. Come work for us. <laughs> and what's the deal with his DY Dan blog these days? And who are you? Who are you reading? You mentioned that part of your part of your job is to like uh, learn about the current philosophy or past philosophy. I suppose. Who are you reading right now? Uh, you know, so like I, I I read a zillion math education blogs. Not being in the classroom, that's how I, I stay closer to what math teachers do, hmm. what exceptional math teachers do in many cases. So mm -hmm. that's that's a big part. I read a lot of blogs. Uh, currently, I'm reading um, some of the history of cognitive load theory, which has influenced a lot of current math ed startups. Trying to understand that better. So, so there's a mix of like ac academic reading and uh, bloggy popular reading, plus yeah. plus some tweeting. You never know. <laughs> and for the reader, for the listeners who don't know what cognitive load theory is, i.e., me, uh, could you explain that a uh, little bit? Yeah, yeah. It, it attempts to explain uh, how to design instruction effectively to make changes in long-term learning, uh, long-term memory. So, uh, looks at <clears throat> uh, uh, different ways in which. Uh, instructional situations impose load on the learner. So uh, there's a good kind of load, like the difficulty in, in learning how to tie your shoes, for instance, that's a, there's like intrinsic load there. And then there's also the extraneous load, which is uh, the, the ways in which teachers basically make it more difficult for students to um, develop those intrinsic skills. Hmm. Anyway, it's a interesting theory that has, a, has had a profound impact on a lot of education. I want to understand better. Cool. And are you still updating your blog with math problems, exercises, things like that? Yeah, I mean, my blog has mutated quite a bit since I, you know, was a teacher and then a grad student and now working here for a startup. So it just kind of it tends to track my interests and questions and different people come and go and read and comment and stop. And it's been fun. Hmm. How do you see how do you see what you're writing about been changing? 
tell me a little bit about like how you see yourself like changing from teacher grad student Desmos chief academic officer. Yeah, I mean, you get back uh, six years, and I'm, I'm writing about classroom anecdotes, dialogue with teachers and students, and then uh, as I move into Stanford, I'm writing more about research, and then here I'm very interested in how uh, technology can help out with uh, teaching, so I'll post makeover challenges and ask, ask teachers who read to help make these things over in, in technology, and then uh, post my own ideas. and. Um, I get a, a lot of insight from the crowd of people who read. My ideas get stronger based on their contributions and, and critiques, certainly. Were you surprised when your blog became so popular ever so long ago? Uh, uh, certainly, certainly. I mean, I, I, I blogged for zero readers for a very long time, just in terms <laughs> of like a, a journal I kept private and then kind of opened that up. And um, yeah, that's been uh, just of incalculable value to my development as a professional having people who are more veteran and know more than me coming by to offer critique and feedback um, I, yeah, I could never calculate the value of that hmm. but as i said before the conversation isn't over at the end of our interview dan said he wanted more i i had anticipated we would chop it up more about what's awesome about math and education and technology and mm. hear your opinions and we have a a rousing back and forth about that but um maybe we've covered that amply i would just yeah i'd ask people to look at would i enjoy what i'm asking students to do in math education technology mm. would be a, a question i hope that all of all of the listeners uh <laughs> would ask themselves as they're assigning web pages for students to click on and Tweet at him, at D.D. Meyer, Meyer spelled M-E-Y-E-R, and at me, at Blaker5, and at EdSurge, E-D-S-U-R-G-E, with any questions you think I should have asked. Okay, that was pretty cool. I enjoyed talking to Dan. See? Math is neat. But Dan is a person. We're creating a story. There isn't much math involved. Well, okay, but at least do your best to appreciate that, you know, these Macs that we're using right now and, and this, this microphone, uh, those are made possible by math. <sighs> I'm already over it. <laughs> Blake, uh, okay. Well, uh, Blake has, Blake, he really doesn't like math. Uh, hey, entrepreneurs, our Summits team has just completed our first 2016 Summit in Riverside, California. If you're interested in putting your product in front of hundreds of interested administrators and educators, head to edsurge.com slash summits. We're probably coming to a city near you. We've got nine to ten more this year. Okay, I guess Blake's not coming back. Uh, he's Blake Montgomery. I'm Michael Winters. Thanks for listening. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. 